Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, May 19th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so uh, let's just uh, throw out some data points here. Uh, the Dow Jones average is now maybe hours away from uh, declaring itself a, uh, a bear market. Uh, the market will soon be down 20% off its high, uh, which is the, you know, which is sort of the unofficial way you say the market is now a bear market and is, is in full correction mode. Uh, that's uh, data point number one. Data point number two, we have analysts uh, saying that uh, gas prices are going to reach $6 and maybe more over the summer in the driving season. And I think most striking is Mohamed El Aryan, who was the one of the geniuses behind PIMCO, the single largest investment fund on earth. Um uh, an economist of, of, of a very high uh, high level uh, and yeah, understands the Fed, is very critical of the Fed in many ways, says stagflation is now avoidable, um, is now unavoidable, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and that um, what's interesting about this is he's saying, don't worry about a recession. Because a lot of people are saying, well, a recession is now unavoidable. It's been this time. Uh, Fed's going to tighten, and then we're going to go into recession. And he's like, uh, no, um, uh, the Fed is being is going to be put in this crazy position because it has two main roles, the Fed, one of which is basically to maintain price stability, meaning to fight inflation, and the other is uh, to create the conditions for maximum employment. And so the Fed can either continue raising rates to fight inflation, which risks throwing the economy into recession, or ignore rising consumer prices and to hope that a a natural growth slowdown will happen. Um, And so basically he says the Fed is screwed either way, doesn't really know what on earth it's going to do about it. All of this is part of what's spooking the market and driving it down lower. And, um, you know, we're not economists and and all of that. And we just sort of are living Americans like everybody else. Most of the people who are listening to this podcast and we're going to have to be living with the consequences. I'm the only one uh, among on this panel who remembers uh, what stagflation was like. Um, and I found myself in an interesting position the other day thinking in stagflationary terms, which is to say, I have a, I have a car, the gas tank is about 17 gallons. And so it had hit, you know, I was like a quarter close, close to a half down. And I was like, well, I'm not really going to have to fill up for another four or five days. And then I thought to myself, I really better fill up today because I don't know where gas prices are going to be in three days. How do I know? I was watching as gas prices ticked up from four and a half dollars to five dollars last week. So maybe I should go to the pump now to fill up because three days from now, it'll be up another 50 cents. How do I know? I mean, it doesn't quite, you know, it's not, it doesn't quite work that way. But that was the thing that went through my head. And that's how people are going to be thinking about every decision they have to make. Abe. There's an inverse to that um, 
sort of the opposite that's also induced by what's going on. So uh, I read that um, there's been a shift in how people now buy milk at the supermarket. Uh, they are now more inclined to buy a half gallon than a gallon. So they're not stocking up. They don't have the available funds to get the gallon. They're going, they're going piece by piece. Right. So so any which way you look at it, rising prices create new forms of behavior among people. And then, of course, this is where the ever elusive problem that economists never know how to deal with, except before they were, you know, data driven. Uh, And we're actually just focusing on human behavior and what human behavior is like in the aggregate. That's the emotional effect. The emotional effect of the fact that your money is going less far. And right now, um, the American workforce is probably better positioned to handle a lot of this because there's a labor shortage, because there's demand, because workers, good workers or workers in general are in, are in, are in extreme demand, which then puts uh, upward pressure for them to get salary increases to help match you know, the things that they need. Okay, well, correct but, that's me if infl- you think but that's inflationary. That's inflationary. But this, there's also, I mean, that the, this is the, the problem of high prices is solved by, the, by high prices. So you, uh, American savings over the course of the last two years, right, ballooned incredibly as we were throwing money into American wallets and there wasn't a lot to buy. Now, savings have collapsed. They're below the 2010 average. And one of the reasons why the stock market collapsed yesterday, as I understand it, is Target retailers, Uh, showing really reduced consumer spending. So you pair that with high inflation, reduced savings, reduced consumer spending, reduced um, profits in the retail sector and rate increases. And that's not going to cause a recession. I don't think you can think of of a point in history when it hasn't, when those conditions haven't caused recession, caused two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which is what a recession is. The thing that I am absolutely baffled by. Right. So we're one quarter away from being in recession because, of course, the last quarter had negative growth. It had, uh, was, was it either 0.4, negative? I can't remember. But I, I, I'm struck by the fact that some of these things should be obvious and that, and that because of the way we collect data, both privately and publicly, they're not. Like until this target report came out that said that consumer spending is cratering i think the uh sort of received wisdom was that consumer spending was good that there was a lot of consumer spending going on like i think so both of these things can't be true you would actually sort of think that that was a number that would be pretty easily (laughs) assembled and reasonably obvious uh, you know, like how much is being spent? And then it's like um, there are people on on all sides of these conversations that will kind of say anything and you don't know why they're saying it, what their what what their purpose is. Are they are they doing client service? Are they are they just whistling past the graveyard because everything is bad? Are they trying to explain to people not to panic because they actually genuinely believe it? But you, you would think that it wouldn't take one report from Target saying consumer spending is bad 
for the world of business to understand that consumer spending had taken a, 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 a serious turn in the other direction and then for everybody to panic. Um, You're so right, because I, re I remember that they were talking about consumer spending as if it were like the, the silver lining when, when there would be a, like a bad jobs number. Or, had, or, or one that came in below expectations. Right. We had a good consumer uh, number right before these reports. So last month, consumer spending was up. But that's not good because that just means people are paying more money for the same amount of goods. Ah, well, that's a really important point. That That is the key point. And that's what I'm saying when I say that um, just as we have learned that expertise is a very double-edged sword and that experts in all sorts of fields, either play games with their expertise or don't, or they know a lot less than they pretend to and all of that. The, yeah, the silver lining is consumer spending at a time of, at a time when the value of a dollar is 8% less than it was last year. That, ha that means that, yeah, the consumers are filling the gap by spending more for the same amount. And that's, a sugar high and effectively like it's not that's not real consumer spending that's really great because it reflects the fact that more products are being made and sold and bought and therefore there's a you know there's a a complete relationship between the manufacturing sector the retail sector and the consumer sector and all of that and they're all working together right that's just and like uh, gasoline which has exploded in cost is inelastic meaning that you buy the same amount of gasoline that you bought at a lower price because you have absolutely no choice. So if consumer spending is up because you have no or choice milk. to buy this inelastic good or milk, half a dozen inelastic goods we can talk about that are driving consumer consumer you know spending. Right. There's also some really weird and funky stuff going on in the labor market that I think just the regular data you look at for unemployment rates and stuff don't quite capture. I mean, there are a lot of jobs still going empty that people are refusing to take. There's a there's a sort of sense of like, these jobs don't meet my expectations. This idea that that uh, this country's workers should have a range of options available to them. And I mean, inflation will likely change that for some people. But this the longer term transformation of the idea of work and what it means and when you should do it and why you should do it. The, I think a lot of the pandemic spending um, and propping up of, of uh, you know, income for people transformed that. And we saw, you know, you've seen all these stories in magazines and stuff about how, oh, the meaning of work, people are reassessing their lives, all that's well and good, but there is an economic impact to that. So it's the same, you can have a low unemployment rate, but if people aren't willing to take jobs that are available, uh, that basically has an effect macroeconomically on, on, on the sense of whether or not, you know, we have full employment. We are still haunted by the example of the 1950s and early 1960s, which is to say that we had a situation in which we had, after certain recessions, we had extraordinarily high and stable employment and rising wages. And until we tried to do the famous doing guns and butter, right? That was Lyndon Johnson. Like he was gonna, he was both gonna spend $5 trillion on the Great Society and fight a major war in Vietnam. Um, at the same time, uh, something because we could afford both guns and butter, as it was said, until that which really kicked off, uh, you know, a new kind of inflationary spiral. America was in this incredibly beautiful sweet spot where people could work and wages were rising and they could go, go 
you know, companies were incredibly solicitous of them because they needed good, a good stable workforce, kept giving them raises, you know, gave, made good union deals, made, started doing retirement benefits and health benefits and all sorts of stuff like that. But that was because of this incredible historical anomaly after the second world war, which is that the industrial plants of the other major industrial powers on the planet had been destroyed. Germany, Britain, Japan, like they were not, they, we had at some point in the 1950s, inside the United States, 60% of all industrial production on the planet Earth was going on inside the United States. And we remain, this is, we're, you know, three generations later, we remain haunted by this example. So, when we have these conversations about employment, for example, and we need to get to full, we need low unemployment. It's really important. I, in no way, shape, or form, I'm going to argue that high unemployment is a good thing. But low unemployment has ancillary consequences. It has a naturally inflationary effect. It is, on the one hand, an amazing thing that after 20 years in which workers in the United States really did not have the power that their employers had. And as a result, certain types of wages stagnated. A lot of things happened like that. And now workers seem to be in the driver's seat because of these labor shortages and things. But that's not without a cost. The cost is that their their money is chasing them to pay them more. And therefore, the the goods that they produce or the or the services that they provide are going to the cost of those are going to be passed on to consumers they're also the consumers so of course in some ways they're getting more money and then they're paying it right back out in terms of inflation and these are this is a highly complex subject and when politicians talk about it populists talk about it you know people go go into it it's like they don't understand the trade-offs or they don't want to admit or acknowledge that there are trade-offs and you know every every good has a bad every every growth cycle there are winners and losers in all social changes it's not a zero sum game but you know you just you can't you know you can't be sure that everything is going to is 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 going to go well and and in some sense um, that's why I, I, it's very hard to listen and, and accept when they, you know, when some, when, when new unemployment numbers come out or GDP numbers come out or something like that, and you get these instant analyses from people who you think are paid millions and millions of dollars and make millions to do this. And then it just turns out they're talking nonsense and either they're talking nonsense or they're, or they're, or they're being deliberately, um, dishonest or, they can't face the reality that is confronting them in the face, which is that we're heading nowhere good. I mean, it's compared to what, you know, but. Well, and the, it, it's interesting how many, and this I think politically is going to be what, where Democrats will justifiably uh, suffer at the polls in, in the fall. If this continues, this, there are a lot of, there are just a lot of mid range, regular average size places in the U S right now where wages have not kept pace with inflation, meaning the people who live in these mid-sized cities, um, one of the reports I saw, you know, these are places like, you know, 
Clarksville, Tennessee, Jacksonville, North Carolina, like mid-level cities in, in states uh, where people are experiencing this firsthand, like they, they feel this. And when they go to their elected representatives and, and they look at the Democratic Party controlling everything and say, well, what's going on? They don't get a clear answer. They get a lot of blame gaming. They get, oh, well, your gas is high because of Putin. Oh, well, but my gas was high before the war. You know, there's there's a lot of mixed messaging, which is why the Democrats are so desperate to have some any messaging bill come out in the next you know month or so. But they're also not getting any sort of hope, right? There's no hope for it ending. And I think that's where the summer, this is why the summer is really crucial and why these, these gas numbers are so horrifying and the mortgage interest rates rising are, are really bad because people are going to be, People who wanted to buy a home or who maybe delayed buying a home during the pandemic and are still looking, they're going to be paying higher rents in the meantime, and they're certainly going to have a much higher interest rate on a mortgage if they are able to find and, and get one. So this means, uh, among other things, I think that the populism that has infected our politics is going to be turbocharged. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely turbocharged. And I mean, that is going to be the theme of 2022, because you're going to have left-wing populism versus right-wing populism. There's going to be very little ground in the middle, and maybe there shouldn't be. In other words, maybe in this case, for this moment, the populist critique will have bite because it will have this validity, which is, you people seem to think you know everything, and look what you've done. Look where we are. Look what's happening. Uh, 40 years, this didn't happen. Now it's happening. I didn't do it. I just followed the rules. You told me I had to stay home for three months. I stayed home for three months. You told me I had to wear a mask for a year. I wore a mask for a year. You told me, you know, you told me I was supposed to panic about healthcare. I panicked about health. You know, I've done everything that I was supposed to do that you said was necessary. And what's different about, say, the reaction to, uh, the meltdown of 2008, which is, of course, vastly worse than this. I mean, you know, people lost 35% of the value of their, you know, stocks, their homes, their, you know, people were immiserated by that, you know, on a, on a total national scale. And we're, we're not, we're not near that, but people were disappointed in, in how Obama handled that and how it, but it was like he overpromised. It's like he was, we're going to have a recovery summer. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. And then growth was very slow. Things were very slow. It didn't really. But this is different because um, Biden was elected on the grounds that he knew how to fix things. Uh, he'll now have been, an, you know, he fixed COVID. He'll, he'll bring things back to normal because of Trump. And, uh, you know, and he's an old hand and all that. It's going to be 18 months and everything is going to be worse. And but the populist uh, critique of this moment has absolutely nothing to offer in terms of solutions. No, in fact, it every solution it will issue will make everything worse because the only solution to the problem of inflation is to make money more expensive, reduce consumer demand and impose pain on you. That is the only solution to inflation that we know of that works. And there's no okay, populist so, critique that embraces that that policy prescription. Ne never does. Never does. But what I'm saying is there will be a reckoning and the reckoning will have this kind of, you know, as I say, the, the, the right the right wing populist message will be a certain set of ideas. The left wing populist message will be another. Right. Some of them will dovetail. 
as they have been increasingly dovetailing that, you know, this is capitalism, that, that this is a sort of late capitalism thing. You know, meanwhile, we have all these billionaires going on Twitter, yelling at each other and yell and, and, and making scenes and building phallic rockets and all of that. And, and, and they're, they're, they're having a high old time and everybody else is suffering. And this is the evil of capitalism. And we just need to take all of their money away. Right. That's where, compact magazine and david sirota are gonna come are gonna have a stand on common ground all i'm saying is that the populist critique which is once again we the american people did what we were supposed to do we paid our bills we paid our taxes we listened to officials that said this was how to combat covid we did this we did that and you know what? None of you knows what the hell you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. We listen to you and things get worse. And so I don't, that's not exactly populism because it's, it's true and it's not ideological, right? It's, 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 it, it doesn't have a, and it's not even, it's not even the blame game because it's a description of an actual reality, which is, you guys, what you went to Washington, you spent between between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, you spent six trillion dollars in new money in I don't know what it was, 14 months or 15 months. Six trillion dollars in new money that had never nothing like that had ever happened before when the Obama stimulus, which was the largest single piece of legislation in dollar terms that had ever been passed in the United States was passed, it was a little less than a trillion dollars. We had the Trump COVID emergency and the Biden COVID emergency and then another, you know, like all told with the infrastructure and everything, six trillion dollars. A, that we don't have, and B, that was supposed to make everything better. And what has it done? It's made everything worse. So is that a populist critique? Maybe not. Maybe it's just a commonsensical critique. But almost everybody who it's aimed at is still in is still in power somehow. I mean, the interesting thing is that you know Trump is obviously in line to win, you know, the Republican nomination in twenty twenty four if he wants it and if he wants to run for it. He's implicated too, you know. I mean, you know, is he going to get no blame? from 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 republicans for his own economic fecklessness in how he handled i mean even though i think everybody sort of support there was a common support for the idea that we needed that COVID emergency bill and we needed you know the ppa loans and we needed this and we needed that but here we are you know we're about to hit stagflation who's a who who is the difficulty gonna gonna rain down on so abe let's go back to this question about the populist this uh, supercharged populist response. What do you, if you sort of think about it, what does it say to you about what the composition will be of the American or the nature of the American in like 2020, in January, 2023? I'm not asking you to predict who wins, how many seats or anything like that, but there's going to be a new Congress. We're going to start heading into 2024. Parties are going to be honing messages, individual ambitious politicians are going to be honing. What are they going to say? Well, I mean, I think generally it's going to mean more firebrands and weirdos, uh, sadly. I mean, that's that's kind of how <clears throat> this manifests. Because as Noah says, the, the, the populist critique are not 
the, the critiques are not constructive. They're, um, they're a sort of airing of grievances and that's, and that's it. And if that's, if that becomes even more desirable among the American people than it is today, then I think we will see more of it on both sides. That's, and that's, as we've been saying, a rejection of trade-offs. This is not an adult political philosophy. It is a political philosophy for children who reject the idea that there are trade-offs, that there are consequences for actions, that there are pain, that pain is associated with gain, that these are the things that they refuse to accept and then inculcate in their voters an idea that it only takes a certain manifestation of will that, that our political class lacks in order to have everything that they want and more. All right, well... <sighs> So things are just uh, things are just peachy then. I mean, I, I'm I'm interested in. Uh, so there's a there's a poll out today from NPR Marist that is focused on uh, abortion, and which purports to show that uh, Democrats are now supercharged on abortion, and uh, this has flipped the generic ballot, uh, meaning who do you want to vote for, a Democrat or Republican, in November in their favor. Uh, a shift of eight points, uh, according to this poll, Republicans were ahead to 47-44, now Democrats are ahead 47-42, and, uh, and this flies in the face of other information that we've gotten lately, but the idea is, boy, Democrats are, they're, they're just supercharged. Um, again, gas prices are going to be $6 a gallon. Are are we going to have an election that centers on abortion? I mean, are we going to have an election that centers on social issues? Well, they're, the Democrats are doubling down. Look, Kamala Harris today on her schedules to talk to abortion providers. Um, there's all these calls now to allow the, for federal government workers to be given uh, leave time so that they can drive to get abortions if they need them, if they live in a place where Roe might be overturned. I mean, they're, it, it's becoming this whole messaging strategy for them. Meanwhile, like, as you say, people are worried about uh, grocery prices, gas prices, how much it costs to, to pay their mortgage at a higher interest rate. And, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi is giving everybody who works, you know, in the House of Representatives a Peloton membership, like the, the, like the optics of some of the stuff that they want to focus on are still they remain elite And this to the populism point. I agree with Noah, like the solutions the populist want are not going to solve any of these problems. But they do offer an alternative to what appears to be elite and particularly elite white women concerns like there's this sort of, uh, you know, and now with the threats, uh, if if the protests become a little more outrageous over the summer, I'm not sure that that it's a distraction. It's a distraction for the Democrats who are just throwing whatever they can at the wall before their members have to go back this summer and try to campaign on what? What are they going to run on? If they only run on abortion, they will be seen to be ignoring the economic issues that are dominating Americans' minds right now. But Noah, Christine makes a good point. But, you know, part of the issue here, as you said, is there's only one way to deal with an inflationary spiral, which is belt tightening, interest rate increases that are, gonna, you know, are, are going to create, you know, uh, painful choices for people. And that takes a while. So maybe it's best for Democrats to do whatever they can to change the subject because they got nothing to say. There's nothing they can't, there's nothing for them to promise. I mean, they can say, we'll tax the rich, or they can say, we'll, you know, make sure there's no price gouging or something like that. But in as a practical measure, this is now out of their hands. They voted for all this money. Uh, they need the Fed to 
figure out how to do the, you know, land the plane perfectly. So maybe, maybe it is social issue summer for the Democrats because they got nothing else to talk about. Can I, can I just let me let me just add one more thing. They know it is because they've got Janet Yellen talking about abortion as as something that women need in order to have jobs, which is, by the way, very right. offensive to all of us who are mothers and yet somehow still manage to do jobs. But they are there are they're actually using the Fed in a way to kind of get that other message in there. Right. We could probably figure out a way to fit abortion into a, a, a budget bill because it has budgetary implications. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll probably be summer, uh, the summer of social issues for Democrats, especially if Dobbs comes down in, in some, a form resembling Alito's draft, although I, I'd be shocked if it is you know, the exact same thing. It'll be probably significantly amended. Nevertheless, Republicans can neutralize this pretty easily, I should think, if they're not dumb, which is not something that you can write off entirely. But if they follow the logic of the decision, which remands the issue to the states, End of story for the generic congressional ballot. It is not a, con- a federal issue. Democrats can pound the table all they want. And Republicans can say this is a state's issue. Go vote for your state legislature, your governor to that effect, if you so like. But it has little to nothing to do with Congress, as Congress aptly demonstrated when it has twice now attempted to codify Roe and more in egregious ways, by the way, and failed to do so. So what are Democrats going to say? They're going to say, well, vote against Republicans because we can't do anything about that. We've tried, we've failed, and it's not even our, it's not even our job. It's an incoherent message. It's designed to, to agitate, but it's not, they have no policy prescriptions that they can affect, certainly not in the federal legislature. Um, I mean, I, I was fascinated. There was a, there was a, a clip that went viral um, uh, yesterday, uh, a hearing uh, on abortion. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana um, kind of went at these two uh, abortion activists, um, Yashika Robinson, uh, who uh, is a board member of the Physicians for Reproductive Health, and then I'm trying to find the name of the other um, the other woman. And he sort of said, okay, you, you're for abortion on demand. Does that mean that you're for, you know, wh- where, where does the demand stop? Does it stop when the baby is halfway out of the birth canal? Does it, does it stop at, you know, is it the fetus is three months old, six months old? How about when the, there's a, obviously you would say if you did it to a baby, like that would be murder. Um, so wh- what's your limiting principle? And they both absolutely refused to answer and said, this is between a woman and her doctor, full stop. Um, and, you know, the, the, the leftist criticism of this, uh, Charles Pierce, the, the, the guy who said that uh, it was really tragic that Teddy Kennedy had, had drowned Mary Jo Kopechny because if she had lived, he would have provided for her in her old age. That was his great piece on Chappaquiddick, uh, political columnist for Esquire. Is sort of making made fun of Johnson for asking these questions and saying, you know, these are these are absurd questions. It's absolutely absurd, and he's he's a disrespectful pos who seems uncomfortable with allowing complete answers to his absurd questions. Um, Yashka Robinson said something like, "I can't imagine a situation in which there was an abortion when someone was halfway out out of the birth canal. Just like you, I'm sure you can't imagine what it would be like if your daughter were raped and needed an abortion, or something like that." Um, 
I'm only bringing this up to say <clears throat> Democrats <clears throat> have no idea how they sound. They think that this issue is like is 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 a killer for them. It's going to absolutely help them rally their people and do all that. This was a very useful hearing because it showed that when the when the con when the difficult questions are pressed, when you get to the kind of dorm room difficult question of what what it means, how you define what life is, and all of that, that they start to sound very callous and very 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 uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to watch someone unable to say if a baby is halfway out of the birth canal, you can't crush its skull and suck out its brain, which is what partial birth abortion is. They can't say that. And, um, and so I, I, I don't know. I mean, you'll never know it from media coverage, but you know it in your kishkas that this is not a good, um, this is not a good message. And so the polling in the absence of everything else may say people don't want Roe v. Wade overturned. But if abortion advocates become the face of this effort and cannot and, and end up saying the kinds of things that abortion advocates end up saying about clumps of cells and things like that, this issue could turn, could very much play against them. I, and they will have no reason to think it would if they believe this Maris poll, which by the way, strange credulity the notion here that there was an eight point swing towards Democrats over the course of a month in the generic ballot test is difficult to believe. I don't have any evidence to suggest there was any sort of malfeasance here. I don't think there would be, but I have no idea how they get a sample that swings that wildly based on an event that hasn't happened. I mean, it, it strikes me as very yeah. difficult to see, for, especially given all the conditions that we understand to be the fundamentals of this election year. Right. Um, so listen, guys, many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our cars or our beds. I certainly do. That's why it's so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. X chair will make your time at your desk not only more productive, but it'll be your favorite place to sit for any reason, because not only does X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL offer the ultimate customized support, but the X-Chair could even give you a massage, heat you up, cool you down, and now thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, you can even adjust your armrests to the perfect position. All these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X-Chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call one eight four 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 X Chair for one hundred dollars off your order. X Chair has a thirty day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as thirty dollars a month. X Chair Commentary dot com. Um, so uh, I want to tell a quick story and then relate it to the news about the disinformation panel. One day when I was a teenager, I was sitting with my, my older sister, Naomi, at a falafel joint in Greenwich Village. When Greenwich Village, which it no longer is, was sort of like the hotbed of radicalism in the United, was a hotbed of radicalism in the United States. And we were sitting below a poster uh, promoting the movies of uh, an Italian film director named Pier Paolo Pasolini. And Pasolini had was there was some kind of retrospective of his career and he uh and 
he had just died. He had just been killed. Um, he was a communist. Um, he was also um, a, a, a very, um, uh, what would you say? Um, he was a, a he was gay and uh, and and very open about it and uh, and uh, made movies about gay orgies and things like that. Okay, so um, uh, Pasolini was killed, and uh, he he was run over several times by his own car. Uh, he might have been murdered by an extortionist. Nobody really knows. Uh, but it was likely, it was more likely than not that this death uh, was the result of some kind of a, uh, an issue involving his homosexuality. And I was sitting there and my sister said, what happened to Pasolini? Or, you know, why, why are they having a retrospective? And I said, well, you know, he died. And she said, he did. And I said, yes, he was killed. And then a guy behind the counter, the guy who ran the falafel joint, said, he was killed. He was killed by a fascist. He was killed by a fascist. Killed by a fascist. And that was the, he was assassinated by a fascist. And I, this came to mind when I read the articles about the decision to suspend or cancel the disinformation board at the Department of Homeland Security, because the, the the idea was this department was killed because it had it was becoming a political liability for reasons we can discuss in a second. But the media coverage of it has been that it was killed. He was killed by a fascist. Disinformation panel was killed by the very forces of disinformation that it was intended to fight against. And this is just a way of like closing off conversation. So we have the New York Times saying the disinformation panel was killed by disinformation. We have Taylor Lawrence, who broke the story in the Washington Post, saying that it was killed because the word went out on the right. This was a coordinated effort to discredit the disinformation panel of Nina Jankowitz. Um, and, uh, and clearly, a lot of people are going to believe this is the case. But uh, obviously, Christine, it is not the case that the disinformation panel was killed by because she was getting too close to the secret of disinformation no and anything taylor lawrence right that entire story should be used as an example in journalism schools of what not to do like our, our the resident new tiktok reporter at the washington post uh who basically was was uh first of all should have disclosed that she and jenko that jenkowitz has defended taylor lawrence against supposedly being bullied online uh, multiple times on twitter the piece read like it was just spoon fed to her by jenkowitz it doesn't it's entirely uh, from one perspective. It doesn't mention at all that there were lots of people on the left and among civil liberties groups in particular who had also raised serious concerns about the mission and scope of a disinformation board. And it also failed to note that Mayorkas himself, the head of DHS, didn't it didn't have his support anymore either. He had had to answer tough questions about it. He didn't like that. Even even Jen Psaki, who Lauren's claims in the piece, you know, defended uh, Jankowitz had not. She kind of punted on any question that was asked about it. It was a disaster. They clearly didn't vet this woman. She's obviously deeply partisan. Uh, whether or not that means she could have uh, had a sort of advisory role in this board, perhaps she could have, but that was, that was not, she was badly chosen. It was bad optics. 
And this whole question of what the scope of this board is was never uh, really discussed openly and with transparency in a way that would reassure the public. So of course you want to, you know, this is this is not the kind of, I, I just keep thinking, imagine if the Trump administration had suggested creating this board and put a partisan person in charge of it. You can, you can, you can completely see what would have happened. Taylor Lauren's reporting is not to be trusted ever. Um, and the idea that this was some sort of reported news story uh, compared to what other outlets have long been saying about this is totally disingenuous. Um, misinformation and disinformation through the DHS was supposed to be focused on foreign influence and how foreigners might have been influencing uh, migrants who wanted to come to the US, how Russian disinformation might have had an impact on homeland security issues. But given this woman's partisan political posturing in the past, there's no reason to trust that she would have, have uh, steered the board in the correct direction. And there are plenty of scholars and academics working on this research who could have been selected to oversee this. I mean, I could name five off the top of my head right now. Those are not what they wanted. They wanted a partisan. That's why she was offered the job. The alleged right-wing attacks on this woman that supposedly scuttled her career and the mission of this adjunct to an executive a cabinet level of, uh, agency were never described or explained or revealed to readers who were just expected to accept that there was this coordinated right-wing attack on this woman. And that ended her, her brief career with the federal government. Those attacks consisted almost exclusively and entirely of commentary-free revelations about how she comported and conducted herself in public. Or just retweeting her, videos she had made herself where she spread misinformation. <laughs> her, her career as a political activist, as somebody who worked with the Hillary Clinton campaign, who spends most of her time online behaving very strangely into a camera, who had wildly exceeded the remit of social media companies by saying there should be particular censors who will edit your contact, your conduct with or without your knowledge, sort of stuff that raised really valid questions and is very similar. In, in the ways in which uh, Lawrence reported on this Twitter account, Libs of TikTok, uh, where she declined to describe any of the content, any of the, con the, the content that this uh, account pr produced without commentary, just highlighting the antics of these people and then inviting people to render their own judgment about that. It's one of the reasons why if you're so online, as Taylor Lawrence describes herself, she's the most online reporter in the industry. And if you're that online, you probably are unaware of how bizarre this woman conducted herself, how outside the mainstream her conduct was, which raises the question, does she have naked pictures of the editorial staff at the Washington Post? How does she get away with this? This is abject negligence. It is an abdication Wait, of your who? responsibilities. Nina, 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 Nina Jankowitz or no, Taylor, Taylor Lawrence. Lawrence. Okay. This well, should let, have never been published as it I, was. No, I can, t I can explain to you what happened as a former newspaper editor. Taylor Lawrence was working on a profile of Nina Jankowitz, and Monday it turned out that Nina Jankowitz's job was over. They were putting a pause on the disinformation board. She was being offered some kind of face-saving way to stay on. She had to decide whether or not to do it. And Taylor Lawrence had already written three thousand words about this, this this campaign against Nina Jankowitz, and they and they blended the two. They blended her the news revelation with this with this with this other stuff but to be fair to with the it, le Post, it led with i mean i'm sorry to interrupt you but it led with an unverifiable claim about the the notion that the right had killed this thing no editor worthy of the no, job really would let that go i don't know who you i don't know what what standard you think the washington post holds itself to when it's covering stuff like disinformation uh 
it, it holds itself to no standard. So it did what it did because that's what it does now. And that's what these people do. And so the New York Times story was exactly the same thing. I mean, so the right made hay out of Nina Jankowitz's silliness and her ridiculous videos. Not just and, the silliness, though. She, no, I know. She, she, the Hunter Biden laptop story, the steel dossier, yeah. these were all things she yeah. promoted that she, turned out to be She promoted, she was an active promoter of the idea that the Hunter Biden laptop was a work of disinformation made by the KGB. And she was getting, going to get this job, I would say, as a reward. It was a, it was actually, she was being rewarded for, for, for being a pseudo academic support structure since she had a job at Brookings. I mean, which is Wilson really Center, I think it was the so, Wilson Center. Can we just talk uh, about even, even better? Even better. Um, <laughs> can we talk about what a massive loser moment this is for the Biden administration? Sort of yet again, um, you know, they've been inept and. Uh, ineffectual at a lot of things, getting all sorts of things they want to happen. Um, they end up failing. But this, they don't look, they, they do look inept and ineffectual, but also totally misguided and ridiculous because the whole project from its inception was so ill-conceived, unpopular for good reason. They went out and they got buy-in from all sorts of institutions, you know, the the Atlantic hosts a big, you know, conference on disinformation and sort of they make it the watchword all over the media. And then there's just this embarrassing collapse. Uh, well, I mean, it's that another, is true. Can I, they also yeah. it's another example of how poorly they vet a lot of their nominees too. a lot of the people they want to put in the administration. This has happened. You know, there was the the, the racist head of Border Patrol. Right. There have been a couple of cases that the crazy communist, the socialist lady who they wanted to put in charge of some financial stuff. I mean, they've had several uh, nominees to high profile positions now who about whom they seem not to have even read their social media <laughs> posts. I mean, it's kind of shocking. Well. So, again, we have this thing where we now have a created line of 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 argumentation that uh, the all powerful right wing media somehow forced the Biden administration into making this move. And the question is, who's satisfied by this? Like, who, 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 who does this narrative support? So why aren't they mad at the Biden administration? Why is the Biden standing up to Jack? They're being they've 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 stopped doing this all important work with this wonderful scholar because of Jack Posobiec. What do they care about Jack Posobiec? What, what who is Jack Posobiec to them that they should have to deal with this? Because this, I mean, here's this, this this is my hobby horse, and John, you you regularly tell me that I'm being overly charitable here to these people and they genuinely believe this stuff but doesn't that reveal to you that they never actually believe any of these narratives themselves or they would be behaving as you say they would with indignation and frustration because this is such an important mission or do they really honestly know that this was a giant screw-up no they don't know it because they they have talked themselves into believing that a cable network that has three million viewers is five thousand times more powerful than a mainstream media that has 30 million viewers and tens of millions of listeners and, you know, and newspaper readers, right? That's their, that they're in their world. Fox runs everything. And the New York times, the Washington post, the associated press, NPR, 
CBS, NBC, ABC, MSNBC, CNN, and the entire Hollywood popular culture have absolutely no impact compared to the five. The five is the thing that runs America. Not the, not the fact that, you know, ABC Evening News has 10 million viewers, has three times the number of viewers of its most, of, of uh, you know, of, of the most popular show on Fox. So you tell me whether they believe it or not. They believe that. You know they believe it. They do believe it. So they can certainly believe. But at the same time, you hear them say the exact same thing you just said particularly with regard to this great replacement theory news cycle that has been ongoing for the better part of a week now. It's only Tucker Carlson only has three million viewers on an, on an average night. Who How says much, that? Uh, the View yesterday. No. Okay, uh, so no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying they do not say that Fox, no one watches Fox. They say Fox is the most powerful force in on the planet Earth in terms of communication. And they, they're just, salmon swimming upstream of the incredibly powerful current created by fox but that's why this disinformation stuff has become so popular among this cadre of people because it's not enough anymore just to finger wag at fox and scold fox news and say oh this is really bad they actually want to use in this case the levers of government or the levers of power pressure to censor what they don't like. And it, this is really ultimately the long game here is censorship of views and opinions and ideas that they will call dangerous or a threat to democracy or disinformation or misinformation. Doesn't matter what the label is. It's this is a danger. We You have to trust us to protect you from. And that is where the Jankowitz thing was. So she just went on NBC, MSNBC last night claiming, I'm not a partisan. How dare they smear me? She literally campaigned for Hillary Clinton. Like it's all over her social media feed. I mean, this woman is not, she's just lying now but they really feel these lies this this dissembling it's all in the service of protecting americans from themselves and from dangerous ideas right okay let's let's close up with um uh, uh, something that uh, noah got very mad about so uh we're talking about how biden the biden administration can't it's very hard for democrats to do anything about this question of of, of the macro the macro economy and where it's going uh, but of course, we had this one very specific case, right, which is the shortage of, of baby formula, which was, in fact, created by a Biden administration blunder on on handling a, a question of a recall and uh, and uh, conditions at a, at a facility at the Abbott Labs facility where a lot of the baby formula is made in the United States. And of course, this became, became a huge issue. Biden first said he wasn't a mind reader, so how could you blame him? And now they're 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 making a move on it. But Noah, you are deeply troubled by the way they're trying to fix the problem. Yeah, uh, I'm all head up about this. And just you know, apologies to the listeners if I sound like I'm in a foul mood this morning. I am, in part because these people are idiots, um, and they constantly force me to acknowledge that. Uh, so yes, we had well, just to update you on where we're at with this problem. Last week, Joe Biden says. He's going to do everything he can to ease the supply strain on baby formula. Reporter asks him if he could have, you know, may have, should have been better mind readers. Maybe we would have done something sooner. Um, he didn't need to be a mi- better mind reader. He needed to be a better news reader. This was reported in November, in December. The Wall Street Journal and the New York Times did profiles on it in January, all before the FDA imposed these, basically shut down this, this uh, company by saying, don't buy these products. And then the company voluntarily recalled them, Abbott Labs. Um, and so, you know, he promised he would re- reduce some import 
restrictions and get things going back at this plant. And all of a sudden, all this happened overnight. This really thorny issue was resolved overnight at, the, at this Abbott manufacturing plant, not because they had discovered some new means to clean up this facility with great alacrity that had eluded them over the last two months, but because they were facing a political crisis. The political crisis has not abated. So the White House has decided to invoke the Defense Production Act in order to get the supply chain moving again in the United States. The Defense Production Act is a cold, early Cold War era uh, emergency measure providing powers to the executive branch that it otherwise wouldn't have absent exigencies. Uh, and it's designed for defense-related issues, you know, defense material, the stuff the Pentagon needs, stuff to keep this country safe. Biden has now invoked it for the third time in his young presidency to address this particular issue. Uh, he did it for uh, arguably national security related reasons, although I would argue against it regarding the pandemic and getting PPP out there and, and the vaccines, that's debatable. He also invoked it for fire hoses because we didn't have enough fire hoses. We needed to fight fires. And he's invoked it for the third time now uh, to relieve the, the pressure on the supply chain here. It has nothing to do with defense and it has almost nothing to do with production. It will allow the administration to require that suppliers of key formula ingredients must prioritize their distribution to baby food producers, um, which are very truncated and limited in this country because of the protectionism that we have around the US dairy industry. The administration initially was coy about this because they weren't sure what that would do if it would relieve any pressure whatsoever. Democratic lawmakers in the House, House leadership, including Nancy Pelosi and Rosa DeLauro, said that it would be illegal in abuse of this particular provision. Nevertheless, nationalist conservatives, left-wing commentators, they all wanted to see it happen. So the Biden administration will do that, uh, along with, by the way, uh, a sort of defense-related initiative, only insofar as it uses Pentagon planes, um, which will fly to Europe to import uh, new uh, uh, formula from Europe, as long as it quote, meets U.S. health and safety standards. U.S. health and safety standards barred the importation of this stuff because it didn't meet FDA labeling and nutritional standards two weeks ago. All of a sudden, we changed those standards. Not because this, this baby formula will kill your child, is dangerous to your child, only because a political crisis was such that we had to actually do something of necessity. The House will also address WIC restrictions, people on supplemental nutritional assistance, assistance who have to navigate a labyrinthine regime in which their particular state has particular contracts with particular providers of, uh, of baby formula. And they have to get a doctor's note in order to change the particular provider that they want to use. This whole regime is insane, was erected at a time of plenty and has been a crisis of crisis proportions for over six months. And only when the political class started talking about it does all this stuff evaporate, meaning that it was never necessary to begin with. So again, you said that you were you were head up because people are idiots. I don't think this is a story of idiocy. This is a story of bureaucracy run amok and desperation, and the ways in which desperation will will uh, necessity will be the mother of invention because of desperation. In the end what we see here is a complete surrender on the principles that led to this shortage in the first place out of political panic. 
I don't think that's idiocy. I don't know why. I'm not sure what the what the right word is. The regime that existed existed yeah. as a result of uh, self interest, um, narrow narrow self interest, uh, a particular um, impulse in the political class to save themselves. And the only reason why we're getting out of it is because of the political class's interest to save themselves. It has nothing to do with you or your pain. It has only everything to do with the fact that cable news started paying attention to this. Right. And you should really resent that. Well, uh, I, I just think it's it, it's what I said the other day. I mean, this is what leads a lot of people to be conservatives is that regulatory regimes end up doing, you know, end up becoming self, self-perpetuating, self-extending and uh, and w- then can work hand in glove with a certain type of corporatism, like the protections that are being granted to dairy uh manufacturers and dairy producers uh, to protect them from European competition. Um, you know, these things are often seen as some kind of, you know, collusion between big business and big government and they're paying, being payoffs and things like that. And it's just as it, regulatory capture involves uh, the idea that um, uh, bi- businesses, big businesses, agribusinesses, people like that can use the regulatory system to benefit themselves uh, because the regulatory system functions theoretically as a protection for people against death and injury and, and, and awful things that government it comes together in a noble way to make, to, to protect the American people from, you know, from, from terrible circumstances. Can I just add one more particular point that is of profound consternation to me? The American right many of whom signed their names to this bipartisan legislation demanding the Defense Production Act be invoked for a purpose completely outside its purview, used to understand that the application of state power in theatrical, unprincipled, and ultimately ineffectual ways was a violation of principle and an abdication of their responsibility to their voters. And they don't, they don't do that anymore. They're captured by the mob. But it is so reckless, so unmoored to anything resembling a sort of an understanding of what your duties are to the constitution and to the people who voted for you, that it is completely disheartening and they deserve all the opprobrium that should be rained down upon them by the only people who care anymore, which is just us. Fair enough. Opprobrium will be rained down upon them until tomorrow when we, when we reconvene, I think Christine will not be with us tomorrow. So we'll see who, what mystery guest might take her place for so, She'll guest star, uh, Philippi. We will, yes, we will, we will, we will see you on Monday. Uh, but the rest of us will see you guys tomorrow. That's uh, so for Abe Christine. No, I'm John Paul Horitz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>